Good morning. Parents, have you ever been in a museum with your children? Or maybe a gift shop? And over and over again, you make it abundantly clear. Do not touch anything. There are signs, please don't touch. No se toca. But as we all know, and all too well, that a sign that says don't touch, or a command that says do not touch, is often ignored. Because the temptation to get involved when we're not supposed to is great. In spiritual things, I have found over the years, the most significant challenge to our faith is staying out of the way. Letting God be God and us not trying to take that role for ourselves. I often will tell people, I'm not the Holy Spirit and I'm not applying for the job. We have to be careful because God desires to do a work. And when God does a work, it's a spirit-led, spirit-powered work. But mankind in his genius can oftentimes mock that or mimic that and do a fleshly work that looks a lot like the work of the Spirit. In fact, many times we pat ourselves on the back in ministry and say, oh, isn't God glorious? He's working in our midst. But what's really happening is we're working really, really, really hard to try and accomplish the works of God. I want to encourage you today, as we get into God's Word in Genesis and chapter 16, to remember that it's best to allow God to do the work. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you because you do a glorious work that doesn't require any genius or innovation on our part. It doesn't require us getting involved or taking ownership of something because you truly are in control and, and we trust you that you don't need our help. And yet you desire to work through us that we might co-labor with you in your will or according to your will in your work. And Lord, that is our hearts. Help us to do less and listen more. Help us to open our hearts to your work and to discern, spend the time discerning and seeking you as to what it is you desire to do and how you desire to do it instead of trying to do the works of the Spirit in the energy of our flesh. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at what is a familiar portion of Scripture in Genesis 16. And I want to say just a couple things before we get started. One of the things that people oftentimes do incorrectly is they look at this chapter and they assume that the uh, events that take place in this chapter are the cause of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Many times will people look, look at what happens here and say, well, see, because of what happened with Abram and Sarai, uh, now we have war in the Middle East. And that, that's just not true. It's just not true. The reason that there's war in the Middle East has many factors, many, many factors over thousands of years. Honestly, the more insignificant one is Ishmael. So I want to look at the account here, and I want us to learn from God's word what he would have us to know about doing the works of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. So let's look at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 4. I'm going to read it for you. We read there, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. 
And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now, Abram and Sarai here are making a decision, and they're making a decision to produce an heir through a maidservant. This, in our culture today, um, sounds bizarre, maybe, to some of you. Uh, It's not as bizarre as you might think, because surrogacy is very popular now. But having said that, remember that Abram believed that the Lord would give him a son. He truly believed this, but he did not know how that would happen. Now, here's the problem when you have a promise from God. You oftentimes try to imagine in your mind how that promise is going to be fulfilled. And the problem is that we sometimes look at the the formula and say, well, what part do I play in fulfilling the promises of God? I'll give you a couple examples. Many times, pastors and teachers will try to plant a church. And listen, having planted a church or been used to plant a church with other people, uh, I can tell you it's not a work you can accomplish. It's not difficult. It's impossible. It's got to be a work of the Spirit. You can't do it. You've got to just allow God to do it, and you have to kind of stay out of the way. How about continuing to pastor or lead a church? Our leaders and pastors here know you, you can't do that. It's not your job to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He'll show you what you will do and what part you will play, but ultimately it's God who leads the church through the power of the Spirit. Now, here's the problem. We sometimes get good at things. And leaders sometimes get involved, and they start to think, well, I know what's best. So we push the Spirit to the side, and we decide that we're going to do a work of the Spirit. We decide what that work will be and how we'll do it. That is a very dangerous place, and it brings very poor fruit, if any fruit at all. It doesn't matter how determined you are to accomplish things. Even if God has promised you, maybe he said, you know, I'm going to use you to plant a church and lead a ministry. And and maybe that's true. But when you get involved and you try to make that happen, either before it's supposed to happen or in a way that it's not supposed to happen, you become a very dangerous person. Because now you're doing the work or trying to accomplish the work of God in the energy of your flesh. We know what, what Paul had to say to the Galatians as they were trying to accomplish the works of the Spirit and the energy of their flesh, he felt that they were bewitched, that they were deceived. And and what happens there, unfortunately, a lot of people get hurt. Because man can never accomplish the work of the Spirit. How about a missions trip? You decide, well, the Lord has called me to missions And I hope that he has, and I believe that he's called many of you. There are many people who are called to missions who run the other way. That is far more common than you might think. Pastor Joe has shared his testimony many times. It's exactly what he did when he was first called to missions. Literally run out the back door. There there are those who are called to missions who don't respond. But there are many who are called or maybe not yet called, and they get involved, and they do things on the mission field, and it becomes a disaster because like that gift shop, like that museum, the sign said, do not touch. And they decided to get involved where they should not have been or when they were not called to do so. So this can be applied across the board. This can be applied to any work of God's Spirit that you decide you're going to get involved in. It's a broad application. I'll allow you to decide how God will speak to you this morning. But I know for me, the greatest application is ministry. Because many times people will come to me with very good ideas, or I'll come up with some what I think are good ideas. But I have learned over the years, 
I don't implement anything unless God is in it. That's probably taken me 40 years to get to the place where I don't move unless God tells me to move. And still, there's the temptation, especially when you're ministering to the needs of an individual, to get involved in someone's life and try to help them when, in fact, you shouldn't. That is definitely more my issue than not getting involved where I should. There are some of you that suffer with the other side of this coin where God has been calling you for years and you've, you have just resisted the work of the Spirit, you've quenched the Holy Spirit, maybe even grieved the Spirit because He is calling you into ministry, He is calling you to serve, He is calling you on the mission field, and you've been saying, no, that's not today's Bible study. We'll get to that type of personality eventually. Today we're talking about the other person I can certainly most relate to, where there's a work to be done and you decide because no one else is doing it, it must be you. After all, there are many pastors that will tell you. If you see a work that needs to be done, maybe it's God telling you to do the work. See, the problem with that is there's a maybe in that phrase. Maybe he's not. One of the classic cases for me was when we moved to this building back in 20 years ago in 2004, uh, April of 2004. I remember we were, were obviously across the street from the high school. And there were many people in our ministry team who felt that the reason we were in Passaic across the street from the high school was to reach the high school. And I didn't feel that inclination at all. And there were some that tried. It never really worked out. And I said, you know, just because we're across the street from the high school doesn't mean that that's our calling. You can't jump to conclusions. So here's the situation. Abram has a promise from God. And he's trying to imagine in his mind how this promise that he believes in could possibly come to pass, and at some point he makes the mistake of touching this situation where he should not have been touching it at all. He didn't know how it would happen. He had received the promise, but Sarai had not received that promise yet. Only he had received the promise. So in fairness to Sarai, all she knew is that her husband said it would happen. She had not heard from God the way that Abram had. Sarai considered the facts. She tried to reason as to how this promise could be fulfilled. And she did have an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar who could act as a surrogate. Now, this was a customary and legal practice in the nations of that time. So this may seem a little perverse and bizarre to us, but to them it was not. And any resulting children of this surrogacy would be considered those of the wife. So this was... Not quite adoption, but it was surrogacy. It was another way of accomplishing what they were trying to accomplish. And in and of itself, in this culture, not a terrible thing, even though it's hard for us to understand. But the reason there's a problem with this decision is that God was not in it. That is, it was a work of the flesh, not a work of the spirit. And God will allow us to accomplish things in the flesh, Many times we learn the hard way that we shouldn't have done it or shouldn't have gotten involved. He'll allow us to, if you will, succeed in our determination to accomplish things in our life because he has given us a degree of sovereignty over our own lives, a degree within the sovereignty of God. And he'll allow us to make decisions that maybe aren't the best decisions so that we'll learn from our mistakes. And that, I believe, is exactly what happened here. Now, let me qualify. I don't believe Ishmael was a mistake, as we'll see. I don't think any child is a mistake. I think it's wrong to use the phrase mistake when describing a child. God gives life to all children, regardless of the circumstances surrounding their conception. And that's one of the reasons why I I, I hesitate to ever endorse terminating a life in the womb. 
under any circumstance, because God is the one that brings life. Now, that's a conversation that you can have uh, on a political level. I'm not having it on a political level. I'm having it on a moral level. Regardless of what you think, terminating a pregnancy is killing a child. You can justify whether there are times you should be able to legally, but it's still taking a life. It is. No one can dispute that. When I was growing up, they told us that it really wasn't a child. And then this thing called ultrasound proved them wrong. And now we know better. Maybe we always did. So here's the problem. This decision on their part is a work of the flesh. So it will only ever accomplish fruit that is fleshly. And that's exactly what happened. So she suggests that Abram have a child with Hagar, and he agreed to the custom. It's the custom. Uh, Abram fathered a, a child with Hagar, who really became his concubine or his second wife. And this, we'll see, is common even in the Middle East today, but was very common then, and especially for reasons like this. He's 85 at the time. Their lifespans were longer. I mean, I believe Abram ultimately lived to be 175. But So he's 85 So he probably convinced himself that this was the way that God would provide. He he knew he had a promise. He would have a son. Sarai comes up with this plan, and he says, well, maybe this is the way God desired to work. So Sarai probably convinced herself this was God's will. He probably convinced himself it was God's will. And Hagar, by the way, had absolutely no choice. She's a servant. And sadly, sadly, in that part of the world at that time and in that part of the world even today, many times women, especially those in slavery or servitude, really have no choice as to what they do with their lives or what's done to them. So what happened? Let's look at the latter part of verse 4 to verse 6. I'll I'll start at the beginning of verse 4. It says, he slept with Hagar, she conceived, and when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. There may have been a number of reasons why she felt that way. But then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord Jehovah judge between you and me. That is, she's appealing to God. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So this problem is a fleshly problem born out of what was a fleshly decision for a fleshly solution to a spiritual promise. Do you see that? That's why I spent the time in the beginning of the study giving you application, because I I don't know that anyone will ever find themselves in this situation, but we find ourselves in the situation every single moment of every day. Are we going to choose to trust God, or are we going to get involved in something? Are we going to touch something that we're told not to? That's what we get back to here. Now, Hagar despised Sarai after she became pregnant. Now, one of the reasons she may have despised her is she didn't want to be pregnant. One of the reasons is it was not her choice. This was really against her will. Or she may have wanted Abram, the father of her unborn child, for herself. Maybe she resented having to share him. I don't know. I think it's more likely she resented being forced to carry this child. She may have considered herself better than Sarai now because of her ability to conceive. Could have been pride. I don't know. But for whatever reason, we learn there that she began to despise her mistress. 
She did. And I can understand. I really couldn't. I really can understand why she might have some animosity towards her. Well, this caused all sorts of problems, obviously. Uh, she felt hurt, Sarai, felt hurt, and betrayed by her maidservant, Hagar, who no longer showed her any respect. And, and that's a thing that Hagar did that was incorrect, and she'll be corrected for this. She showed a lack of respect for her mistress. She may have blamed Abram for not, uh, this is Sarai, may have blamed Abram for not correcting Hagar's behavior toward her. Uh, Sarai may have had second thoughts about the plan now that problems had arisen. That's what often happens when we get involved in a work that isn't a work of the Spirit. We oftentimes almost immediately realize, why did I do this to myself? How did I get involved in this situation? Oh my goodness, if I had only just left it alone. So she appealed to the Lord to resolve the problems between her and her husband. And by the way, that's always the best thing to do. When you get yourself in a fix or a mess, appeal to the Lord. May the Lord judge between you and me. More of us need to do this when we have a conflict. Rather than battling it out, we need to say, may the Lord judge between me and you, or you and me. May the Lord figure the situation out. May he show us who's right or who's wrong or what the solution is. It's never too late, no matter how fleshly you've become, to appeal to the Lord and ask for his help. And that's what she does. So I I credit her in that regard. However, the custom of surrogacy also allowed the wife to order the mistress and the child to leave. This would be the last resort under extreme conditions. So what did Abram do? He delegated his authority over to his second wife. It actually, uh, or, or over his second wife, to his first wife, Sarai. He actually just passed on it. He said, hey, look, this was your idea. I went along with it. Now you, you do whatever you feel comfortable with. Uh, you can blame Abram for this, but really, at this point, that's kind of what Sarai really wanted. She really wanted the authority to resolve the situation. And so... This woman took full advantage of the opportunity and mistreated her former maidservant. And that's incorrect. Remember, put yourself in the place of Hagar. She certainly didn't ask for this. Now the problems have come about. She's probably very young. And and here she is now upset with her mistress. And now her mistress mistreats her. And so what did Hagar do? What what any, probably, I say, any young woman might have done under these circumstances, she runs away. She decides to run away because she's unwilling to submit to Sarai anymore. And so we find ourselves here in verse 7, and God gets involved. Now, I've, I've shared a lot about why you don't want to get involved in the work of the flesh. But eventually, at some point in your life, you may actually make this mistake. It's important to note that when we make mistakes of this magnitude, the important response is to appeal to the Lord. And then we follow that up with relying on God to resolve the problem. Because you can make it even worse, as Sarai did, by trying to solve the problem that you created yourself. So a lot of times, uh, pastors and ministers, missionaries, Christians, they create a problem And then they try to fix the problem, and they make the problem worse. Have you ever done any work on your home? Maybe you guys, maybe some ladies. And you decide, I'm going to fix that. 
plumbing problem that I have, that electrical issue that I'm dealing with, and you start, and it works out well. You don't electrocute yourself. You don't flood the house, but you don't fix the problem. You make it worse. One of my least, no, my least favorite home improvement, unclogging a drain with an auger. I went out, I bought one, not the 1000 or $2,000 one that my plumber has, just one of those ones with the hand crank, right? I'm telling you right now, don't waste your time. I can tell you from experience, don't even bother. You know what I do when the drain gets clogged? I call my plumber. I call the clog specialists because they can unclog a drain better and quicker than I ever will. So, yes, a clog is created by us. Maybe we put grease down the kitchen sink. That happened to us once. That was a nightmare. There are solutions. The best one is call the plumber. Then there's the, those of you who have wives with long hair. <laughs> or husbands with long hair. Or little girls with long hair. Right? You know what happens in the shower. I don't need to tell you. One day there's, hey, I didn't put the stop in the drain. And the drain doesn't work anymore. How many hours I've wasted with the auger thinking that I was somehow a plumber just to find out that the mess that we created was best taken care of by someone else. God is expert at unclogging the messes that you make. It's best to go to him. So call in the pro. Call in the person that is best, and that is God. Oh, God's not going to fix a problem I created. I have to fix it so I can get back to where I was supposed to be. No, God is expert at fixing the problems we create. Isn't he? Amen? So there's a lot of application here today. But here's what we read. The angel of the Lord, that is the messenger of Jehovah. The messenger of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai answered. Well, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, this is a promise. There's some parts of that promise that don't sound too promising, but it is a promise. What the angel of the Lord is doing is intervening. God intervenes. Can I hear an amen? Do you believe God intervenes? Amen. Aren't you glad he intervenes? Sometimes we look at people's lives and we say, we need to stage an intervention. What we need is an intervention. I need one every day. I need God to intervene in my life to correct the mistakes I've made that put me back on course as I submit and worship him. But it's better, if you can, to spend the time discerning his will so that you don't end up doing things that have to be fixed. Back to the plumbing example. Watch the Google video first. Ask a question before you embark on a plumbing repair. Before you electrocute yourself, 
Maybe talk to the guy in the Home Depot aisle before you attempt something on your own. See, sometimes it's best to just seek counsel before you get involved in something that you may find you're going to be in over your head. So here's the thing. The angel of the Lord intervened. He intervened in order to bring peace to this fractured family. He corrected Hagar. And how did he do it? By sending her back to Sarai and telling her to submit to Sarai. In a conflict with your boss, your parents, anyone in authority over you, a ministry leader, can I just say this? It starts with you in the lower seat submitting yourself to your authority. It doesn't mean your authority is right. It doesn't mean you didn't have a valid case. It just means that you respect authority. The Bible is replete with examples. I think of Romans 13, where in order to resolve conflict, we need to submit to our authority. Now, I I do not say submit to your authority in sin, but sometimes it's just a matter of methods. It's just a matter of of preference. And, And many times people get in trouble because they simply don't respect authority. Now, that was this young girl, I said young girl's problem, because, I mean, obviously, she didn't want to be in this situation, and she didn't submit to her authority. So what does the Lord say? Go back and submit to your authority. So maybe you're in a conflict of your own making. Maybe, maybe it's not of your own making, and you're trying to resolve it, and you're thinking, well, I am not going to admit anything to, the, to her or to him. Uh, no, she has to apologize to me. He has to apologize to me. It starts with just submitting. You know, it really does. And even if you're the person in authority, what did Jesus tell us about taking the lower seat? Right? If you're the person in authority, maybe you need to at least meekly submit to to the person that technically is accountable to you. Anything to find peace within reason, you should as much as possible live at peace with everyone. And that is a New Testament teaching. Paul told us that. So, When I look at this, I realize the Lord gave really good counsel, and he always does. Go back, return, submit. And the Lord promised to make her descendants, and this is a promise to Hagar, to make her descendants innumerable through her unborn child, predicting that she would have a son, and that she should name him Ishmael. Now, Ishmael, or Ismael, means God hears. God hears. What do you think God heard? The heart of Hagar. God heard how she felt. God heard and understood what she was going through. Even if she didn't verbalize it, God heard her heart and God hears you. He knows what you're going through. God had heard of her misery and he intervened and God will intervene in your life if you're suffering the consequences of someone else's sin, which is the case of Hagar. I think she's suffering because someone else did something they shouldn't have. And that oftentimes is the case as well. It's not just that we suffer because we make mistakes. Parents and children, sometimes we suffer because of the mistakes of others. Can God fix those problems? Can I hear an amen? Of course he can. And he does. He hears. Say it with me. God hears. God hears. Ishmael would grow to be a contentious man. Now, this isn't a punishment. This is just a situation. And, and listen, parents, you know that. You have children, and, and, and who are, some are very peaceful. Some are very calm. You have others that are contentious. Because we have adults that are like that, Right? We have some people that are very contentious and other people that are much more peaceful 
uh, peacemakers and troublemakers, you know? And we think, well, why? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think what we're being told here is that some people are just like that. Some of your children are better behaved than others, right? Oh, no, your children are perfect. It's everyone else's kids, right? No, of course you know this. And parents, if you have several children, you know there are some kids that are just contentious. They're fighting you on everything. And there are others that, you know, my goodness, you think to yourself, this child never does anything wrong. If that's your case, then uh, God bless you. It seldom happens, right? But occasionally you have children that are very, very accommodating. They, they, they're obedient. And you have others that no matter what you do, they just don't listen. Ishmael was going to be that kind of person. He would be contentious, constantly striving with others. Hagar must have appreciated receiving a promise like this because... At this point, I'm not sure what she was thinking. Who knows what she was thinking? Maybe she ran off into the desert to die. I don't know, but I do know this. She was not happy with her circumstances. You know, there are many people who are taken advantage of, young women especially, and they find themselves in the situation that Hagar was in. We have to be so careful and so compassionate and empathetic to understand that sometimes people get involved in a relationship, young women, they're not thinking, and they find themselves conceiving a child, or they were taken advantage of, and now they're pregnant. And we have to be so careful in the church to understand that the women in those situations are suffering a misery that's different than maybe a different kind of misery, but it, it, it could be a joyful thing, but it, it can also be a really scary and terrible thing. And that's why we at Calvary Chapel support ministries that not only protect the life of the unborn, but support young mothers or any mother who is going through a miserable experience because they've conceived the child. It can be the, the mother of so many children that she's stressed out about the fact that She's now going to have one more. It can be a single mom. It can be uh, someone who had a moment of indiscretion and is now suffering the consequences of maybe not doing the right thing. It can be someone, unfortunately, especially uh, if they were molested or taken advantage of by even a family member. And it's the role of the church, yes, to support life. But that includes the life of that mother. And so we want to do both. We want to encourage and support this mother, but we also want to protect the life of the unborn. I think sometimes that gets lost in the message in the church. We're so pro-life, and indeed I am, and we, we appreciate the sanctity of life so much that sometimes we forget how important it is to say that. Even though we mean that, even though we obviously feel that way, I think we need to say that. Maybe we need to say that first, and then proceed as we talk about the life of the child. Well, here's the thing. Hagar obeyed the angel of the Lord. Look at verses 13 through 15. She gave this name to the Lord, that is to Jehovah. Now, God didn't need another name. This is a way of describing God, not so much naming him as describing his character in her life, she gave this name to Jehovah or Yahweh, who spoke to her, You are the God, or El, 
You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bera Laharoi. And uh, that is the well of the living one who sees me. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So you might be saying, well, that's not what Hagar wanted. It's probably, I dare say, not what anyone had planned or even God had necessarily wanted to happen. But God works through these things, doesn't he? Do you think any child is a mistake? Because I don't. I don't. Sometimes people feel if a child is special needs, that that's a mistake. I don't believe there are any mistakes. God works through our mistakes. But when he brings a life into the world, I don't think we should ever use that phrase. No one is a mistake. God is sovereign over all things. He hears, he sees, he knows, and even in what looks like a terrible situation, a miserable experience, God works sovereignly. Amen? That's important to remember that. That'll give you hope. That should give hope to anyone who's suffering a miserable experience. Maybe because of someone else's bad behavior or their own. So her encounter with the angel of the Lord forever changed her relationship with God. See, Hagar obeyed the angel of the Lord, returning to Abram and Sarai, and and she submitted. It's the only way this could have been resolved. And so she referred to the angel of the Lord, or the messenger of Jehovah, as the living one who sees me. She's not speaking with an angel. She calls him Jehovah, or Yahweh, and God, or El. This angel or messenger of Jehovah or word of the Lord is also an acceptable uh, translation or interpretation. This messenger exercises divine authority and has divine knowledge concerning her. I believe this messenger of Jehovah is the word of the Lord himself. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. No one has ever seen God at any time. But we're talking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. But many people, and we've seen this and we will see this again, we've seen it already, many people have encountered God in a human form in the Old Testament. And of course, in the New Testament, we have Jesus in human flesh, not human form, in human flesh. And so I believe this is Jesus, the the Son of God, before he took on flesh, appearing as the Son of God in human form. Hagar names the well at the spring in the desert after the angel of the Lord or the messenger of Jehovah. Now her encounter with the angel of the Lord healed her relationship with Sarai. It had to. She must have humbled herself before Sarai, as the angel told her to, in order to live peaceably with her, right? She lived in obedience to God by bearing Abram a son who he named Ishmael, God hears. A continual reminder to Hagar that God was with her. Abram may have believed Hagar's account basically, solely based on her behavior. When someone changes, you're inclined to believe their testimony. He may have named him, believing that God had finally heard 
his prayer. Now, Abram definitely believed that the Lord had finally fulfilled his promise of a son at the age of 86. He believed that. Through all of this, he's saying to himself, well, God did say I would have a son. He was satisfied that his fleshly actions had fulfilled God's will. He was. Imagine his surprise when he finds out that he was mistaken several years later at the age of 99 when he has a son, the son of the, according to the Spirit, who is Isaac. Well, I think we've learned a lot in our faith journey by looking at the lives of Abram and Sarai. There's lots of application here, and maybe you find yourself this morning in a situation like Hagar, where you are completely miserable because of the bad decisions of others. Maybe your children's behavior, their bad decisions. Maybe your parents' lack of attention or neglect. Whatever it is that has caused you to feel misery today, I want to remind you that the Word of God will come to you. The written Word, the living Word, the Son of God. And when he comes to you, he's going to encourage you to do the right thing. He's going to give you the opportunity to do the right thing. And when you do, you will be blessed. Amen? Or maybe you're like Sarai and Abram who took things into your own hands and you made a mess of things. And then you tried to fix it and it got worse. It's not too late to appeal to God and say, Lord, I've made quite a mess of things. I didn't trust you got involved in a situation I should not have, thinking I needed to take another job in order to you know, provide for my family, and all I've done is fracture my family, and now my wife and children don't know who I am. Or maybe you got involved in some endeavor, some financial speculation. Maybe you decided that you were going to accomplish something, and it blew up in your face. Maybe you invested in Bitcoin or Enron or something of that nature, and you thought, this is the best thing ever. Only it was until it wasn't. There are all types of areas of our lives where we can apply today's message. I'm sure there's another thousand that I didn't mention. But I'm just trying to show you the most important lesson is that even if you've made a mess of things, God cleans up our messes. So when you see the sign, do not touch. It's best if you don't. But if you do, and you broke something... God can fix it. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement in the book of Genesis. We not only look at the history and the lives of those that came before us and their faith walk, but we're challenged in our own walk of faith. And we can so relate to these individuals because, like us, they were fallen. They made mistakes. Even with great promises and you appearing to them, they still made mistakes. Mistakes is really a watered-down word for sin. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but you have a solution for that. And the solution is that you demonstrate your own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, those that make mistakes, you sent your own Son to die on a cross for our sins. And after dying, after three days, he rose again, ever lives to make intercession at the throne of God on our behalf, interceding, praying for us when we fail. But most importantly, promising to return to set things right.
that truly fix the things that are broken in this world. Oh, Lord, as a race, we have destroyed everything we put our hand to. We destroy our own lives. We destroy the lives of others. We fight wars. We harm people. We take advantage of others. Sin runs rampant in our race. And yet you have promised to fix it. You hear. You see. You know. You desire to come again to judge the living and the dead, to set things right. And we pray for that day. But until then, Lord, may we submit to you. May we submit to your will and may we trust you with your promises, not just your promises, but with all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.